and we beheld his glory. It was almost to the month, a decade ago, that doesn't seem possible to me, a decade ago, that we were studying John's gospel together. And I'm returning to it, at least for a while. I don't know for how long. I love John's gospel. I love John's gospel. I mean, I love God's word, but I really love John's gospel. It's been probably my favorite book in the Bible for a very, very long time. And I want to kind of reintroduce it, how John introduces his gospel. Written probably around 85 AD, give or take, almost certainly by the Apostle John. And it stands out from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic gospels. The term synoptic It's not important, but it's a combination of the Greek words syn, meaning to S-Y-N, together, and oopsis, meaning to see. And the idea is you can take the first three Gospels and lay them alongside of each other, and you get a more complete picture of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. John's Gospel is not one of the synoptic Gospels. He lists events that none of the other Gospels mention. It's interesting to see some of the differences. And and strikingly, perhaps, he omits events that all the three other Gospels include. John gives almost no account of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, not mentioned by John at all. The baptism of Jesus in the other Gospels is not mentioned. In John's gospel, there's no hint of an account of the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. I mean, those are huge differences. And John also switches the order of some of the key events in the other gospel accounts. That shouldn't freak anybody out. He has a different emphasis. We're going to study more about why he does that. So, for example, John has the cleansing of the temple and the driving out of the money changers. In the synoptics, that's consistently recorded near the end of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John puts it in chapter 2, right at the very beginning of his account. And there are other differences. John focuses his account in keeping with, with his overall purpose, his overall purpose in persuading, persuading belief, deep rooted, confident belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, God the Son. John 20, 30, 31. Now, Jesus did many other, that's the word John uses, not just miracles, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and... It's not just, I'm trying to convince you of something so you can have this intellectual knowledge, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So so John, interesting, John is pulling in the opposite direction of the whole deconstruction movement. It's almost almost like he anticipates this kind of religious cultural decline 
when he writes this gospel. John builds, carefully constructs his account around these seven miracles, though he repeatedly uses a very different name for them. It's in keeping with that overall purpose. He calls these seven signs. And I think what he means is these weren't just tricks, and they weren't even just acts of social justice or compassion. Not just that. These miracles are not, in John's eyes, mere manifestations of his loving character, though they are that. No, John says there's something, they point to something. All of these signs, they point to something beyond themselves. They point to who Jesus is. They validate him as the Christ, God the Son. John's also famous for his recording of the great seven I am's of Jesus. What wonderful stuff that is. I am the bread of life, 635. I'm the light of the world, the world, 812. I'm the door of the sheep, 107. I'm the good shepherd, 1011. I'm the resurrection and the life, 1125. I am the way, the truth, the life, 14.6. I am the true vine, 15.1.5. I mean, forget Jesus Christ's superstar. There's, there's nothing insecure or hesitant in Jesus' view of himself. And so we're on a, a marvelous journey, a revisit, I'm calling it. John's is truly a unique gospel. Let's jump into the opening text. John 1, 1 to 3. I'm not sure why that's written like that. That's what it is, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So point number one, John wants all sincere seekers of God to know Jesus Christ is God's, I'm picking two words that aren't in the text, God's unique and God's essential manifestation. Both those words are important. Unique is important because it means there is no one like Jesus Christ. He's not one of several means or options to know Father God. He's unique. Essential is important because it means Father God will accept no terms of peace, no terms of union, apart from Jesus Christ, God the Son. You get that in 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Forget that you know those words so well, just for a minute. We should be grateful. Luke opens his account like a historian. Medical doctor Luke 
writes as a historian, and we need that revelation. John opens his account like a theologian. He addresses another urgent need. He takes us all back to what we need to know about Jesus before the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts of his birth in Bethlehem. John goes back before the first Christmas. And I hope you can see how really marvelously crafted that single first sentence of the very first verse is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So everything important is in that one sentence. When the Word was in the beginning. Where the Word was with God. Who the Word was was God. This is not quick, accidental writing. There's a a simplicity that's brilliant here. We owe to John's powerful emphasis a great deal of gratitude and, and careful thought. All the other Gospels unfold the divinity of Jesus in stages, by degrees. John can't wait that long. I love it. You sense his excitement in the way he just splatters divinity and glory of God, the Son, in the very first sentence in his account. How long does John wait to get to the heart of the matter regarding the greatness of Jesus Christ? Sentence number one. Oh, that our hearts had that passion. I just have two quick additional observations I want to make on those opening verses. First... John uses the simplest words to open his gospel about the Trinitarian God. Forgive me for quoting them again, but just notice the repetition of two simple monosyllabic words. Was, with. It's not complicated. In the beginning, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Was with. Was defines the Word. The Word was God. That means he was not anything other than God. With is the relational word. It means the Word was God, and yet he was not alone in his Godness. He was not a God, and yet he was with God. And you you kind of behold the triune nature being placed before us in John's first two verses. This, John insists, that's what he's doing, putting it right up front. John says, you have to get this right. You don't have to get everything right. You have to have this right. This is the only acceptable starting place. John repeats both of these terms because, well, he's unpacking a truth that we can only take in gradually. I mean, our earthbound minds process something like the Trinity only bit by bit and little by little. And John repeats his words as if to show us he really intended to say what he said. Like we'd say to someone, that's right, you heard me. That's what John's doing. 
So that's the first thing. John uses the simplest words to open his gospel with a Trinitarian God. Second, God the Son is defined with this intriguing label. It's right there, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That, too, I think is a pretty carefully chosen term. Try to imagine, just for a minute, try to imagine what someone, anyone, is thinking, what's in his or her heart without their use of any words. And remember, I mean, no capacity to express their thoughts at all. Like a person who couldn't speak could still write or sign. But those are just expressions of unspoken words. Communication in a silent form. I don't mean that. I mean, try to know someone, what's inside them, with no, no word-based communication at all. Be very, very little different from being in a deep coma. How would you find out anything about them? And now I think... We're just closing in on the weight of John's description of Jesus as the Word. God's Word to this dark world. So John's deep opening remarks, say say verses 1 through 5. We haven't looked at all those. They're very crafted and calculated. They're all interwoven like threads on a knit sweater. When John says Jesus is the Word, he's already calculating on the kind of world the Word would come into. He's already calculating on his description of this world as a very dark world. That's in the fifth verse. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the description of Jesus as the Word helps us understand the, the, the kind of darkness this world is in. It's not just that there's war and pestilence or famine. or It's not just that. John is saying that, that this world is, by and large, in the dark about knowing God, knowing what he's like in any saving way at all, apart from Jesus. That's the Word. That's the communication. There's the truth. There's something manifested now that we can see what God was saying. This is the only place. Remember that illustration about communication. Someone that can't communicate in any form. So when he talks about Jesus being the word, John is saying this is the only place where we have any hope for light. There is no other way out of this darkness. It's not going to be education or an approved economy. God isn't just gesturing or shrugging or signaling this dark world. He's he's speaking his heart to us. We have something firm, something absolute, something helpful. The writer of Hebrews, he gets the same idea exactly In these last days, he has spoken there. See that? The word? He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. Okay, point number two. John's gospel is unique in its immediate emphasis on Jesus as the creator of all things, strikingly. And I think there's a reason for it. It's in that third verse. And it's a little redundant, and you wonder why he does this. First, all things were made through him. There it is. He created everything. But he can't just drop it. And and without him was not anything made that was made, which seems to be saying the same as that. Why the repetition? If you know your Bible at all, you can't read the first three words of John's gospel without your mind going to somewhere else in the Bible. And it just it can't be just a mere coincidence that John begins his New Testament gospel with these famous words in the beginning, 1-1. In the beginning. And we get it. We get it, John. There's a huge undergirding theological principle being established here. The one who is coming into the world, the Word who John the Baptist will shortly see and publicize. This word, this one coming into the world, is going to do more than most people imagine. Many will see his life, his miracles, his death. Many will rejoice in the forgiveness that he will provide for sins. Of course. But but John's mind is racing even beyond those precious things. See, the one who is coming, the Word, he will lay the foundation for nothing less than a totally new creation. He will, in New Testament words, he will make all, make, make all things new. And John's way of signaling all of this is by reminding us that the one coming to establish this entirely new creation, they're new creatures in Christ, new creation, the one that's coming is is none other than the one who is active in Genesis 1.1. And we can trust him with a new creation because he's already the creator of everything. He's already the creator of everything. In other words, Jesus has the credentials to come and to do what he's coming to do. Church, what needs this divine making new in your life, in your circumstances? What what is it that just seems... Wonderful that Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. It's wonderful that he gave us these precious teachings. It's wonderful that our sins are forgiven. But Pastor Don, you don't, you don't know the mess I'm in with my kids not following Jesus. Pastor Don, you don't know what my life is like because you just see me sitting in the pew Sunday morning and you have no idea the kind of addictions, the pornographic internet sites, 
Pastor Don, you don't have any understanding of the kind of fear I live with that my husband doesn't love me anymore. What, what is it in your life where you need someone who has the track record and the authority to make things new? Not just to give you some advice. Good night. There's advice all over the place. This is the one without whom not anything was made that was made. And he comes into your life and into my life, not just to patch things up, but to make things new. One day, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be the same one who will come and do all of that. How do we know? Well, he's already done it. He was involved in the original creation. We surely need more than instruction. And this one, the Word, came to open the heart to God again because He is the one who created us in God's image in the first place. I have one other thought here. Notice carefully the repetition of John's words in this single verse. This, I'll clean it up, 1-3. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. This is either really poor writing or really careful writing. I think it's the latter. Why does he do this? What's he up to? I mean, the single sentence is composed of two distinct phrases, and they say almost the same thing, but not quite the same thing. John knew there was a very common heresy floating around in his day that still exists in ours. There was the idea that God the Father was the real God, the real creator, he created a slightly subordinate son, and then the son was also involved in the rest of creation. That's the reason for that second phrase in John's third verse. Very carefully, John insists, without him, those are the important words, without him was not anything made that was made. What are you getting at, John? Well, if the father created the son and then they were involved together from that point on in the creative task, then there was something, the Son, that was created without him. If the Father made the Son, then the Son wasn't involved in making the Son. You get what I'm saying? And that's what John says never, never happened. There was and still is nothing created ever at any point that exists that the Son didn't create. And there isn't a single atom in all the universe that He, the Word, through the power of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and His coming, there's not an atom in the whole universe that won't, He won't subdue to Himself in his grand recreative assignment. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. See that verse? See that verse? Let's read it out loud. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Yeah, that's John's same message. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he didn't just come to forgive sins. That's a part of his work. The forgiveness of sins is the means to a wonderful end. There will come a new heaven and a new earth. The graves will open up. And our decaying bodies will be raised and transformed to be like Jesus' own body. Paul says so. And John's point is, only the original creator can do that. Only the original creator can do that. Don't put your hope anywhere else. The one who originally made the world and all that is in it, out of absolutely nothing, will faithfully remake this world he redeemed with his own blood. And I submit to you that whether I did a good job or not, that that's an awful lot of truth to pack into the first three verses of John's gospel. It is a futile act to place your hope for your own eternal life and the recreation of this present earth. It is a futile act to place your hope in anything but Jesus Christ, the Word, the Word. John gets it straight right off the bat. Go to Jesus. There's no one else. Go to Jesus. 